True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Today's episode is sponsored by King Online, and I'm really excited to announce an amazing giveaway competition for True Crime South Africa listeners that's starting today in partnership with King Online. King Online is an online health store with literally everything you need to keep your body fighting fit this winter. Their huge range covers your needs for vitamins, supplements, home test kits, health food, hair care and so much more. And they deliver straight to your door throughout South Africa. King Online has noticed that True Crime South Africa listeners love reading especially books in the true crime and crime fiction or thriller genre. So they've put together three gift packs of brand new release books for three lucky winners. The first prize is valued at 1,300 Rand and contains five brand new releases. The second prize is valued at 700 Rand and contains three brand new releases. And the third prize contains two brand new release books and is valued at 400 Rand. The prizes include Courier to Your Door Inside the Borders of South Africa. So what do you need to do to enter? Well, it's easy. Just use the link that I've put in the show notes. I'll put that out on social media too. And place your order to the value of 400 Rand or more. The link will also give you details of all the books contained in the bundles. Now here's the important bit. In order to be entered into the draw, you have to use the code TCSA10 at checkout. And trust me, you want to use it, because it gives you a 10% discount, and helps you to support the show too. The first 50 people that place their 400 Rand order with King Online using the code TCSA10 will be entered into the draw. The giveaway is open to all residents of South Africa and will run until 50 people have entered, which I can guarantee you is going to be pretty quick, because these prizes are phenomenal. Oh, just FYI, I handpicked the books in these bundles, and I know you are going to love them. So what are you waiting for? Head over to King Online now, Get your entry in and help support the show at the same time. A huge thank you to King Online for being such amazing supporters of True Crime South Africa. I know that you're all super keen for me to get into part three now, so I'll do my shout-outs to this week's Patreon and PayPal supporters at the end of the episode instead. Listen out for your shout-outs if you've signed up on Patreon or donated to the show through PayPal. In the first two parts of episode 52, the Van Breda family murders, we became familiar with the Van Breda family and then learned of the horrific demise of three family members in an attack in their home. The police's investigation has focused on several different possibilities and all but eliminated the probability of an outside intruder having been responsible for the crimes as was Henry van Breda's version. When I started this case, I was under the misguided impression that I could fit all the info into two parts. Then I thought maybe three parts would work. But no, 
in order to properly cover all angles and possibilities in this case, I'm going to need one more part. So next week's part four will be the final episode. No, really, it will, I promise. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into episode 52, part three of the Fun Bradar Family Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Three months after the Van Bredar family is attacked and three of the members are killed, Henry Van Bredar is photographed on a beach in Blobachstrand. He walks with his uncle, André de Toy, and a female cousin. With them is Sasha, the other member of the family to survive the horror that night. She's Molly's black dog. Beach outings have become common for André and his nephew. They walk the dogs and then sit on the sand, often in silence. Henry smokes cigarettes. On the day of the photograph, he's wearing a Superman shirt. On the day of the murders, the first person that Henry phoned was his 17-year-old girlfriend, Bianca van der Westezen. He called and texted her several times that morning, the details of which we'll get into a little later. She arrived at the scene only after first responders had arrived. Since then, the romance between her and Henry is fizzled out. She'll eventually be sent overseas by her parents to get away from the buzz of media attention around Henry and every person connected to him. It is this media attention that so often focuses on Andre de Toy's home that is said to prompt Henry to move out. At the same time, though, Molly, who'd been living with her boyfriend, James Reed John's family, in Somerset West, since she was discharged from the Physical Rehabilitation Centre, moves in with her uncle. Everyone wants to know if Henry and Molly are purposefully being kept apart, but the family will say that she is simply not ready to see her brother yet. Soon after this move, Miley posts photographs of her parents and Rudy on Instagram with the caption, The people I love the most. Speculation is rife when there are no photographs of Henry included. Henry visits cousins in Gauteng for a while and then moves into a guest house in Cape Town for two weeks. The months that follow will be a carousel of different guest houses for him. He doesn't stay put for more than two to three weeks at a time. Whether he does this to shake the media, or for other reasons, is unknown, but some of the guest house owners will come forward later. Many say that they had no idea who Henry van Bredar was when he stayed with them. A few mention that he gave them a falsified backstory, saying that he was from Johannesburg and studying at the University of Stellenbosch. He told a few people that his parents lived in Australia. Many of the guest house owners describe him as aloof. He would never eat meals with them, despite having breakfast included in the price at some of the establishments. One guest house owner told of a filthy room left behind by the boy. Takeaway boxes and empty alcohol containers lay strewn across the floor of the room. 
On Friday the 12th of June, it's reported that Marley and Henry see each other for the first time since the murders. Few details are released, but the family claim the two were very happy to see each other and hugged and wept. In the final school term of 2015, Miley decides to rejoin her class. Her physical injuries are healing, and although she tires quickly and is given frequent breaks, she's able to cope with her normal school subjects. Marley's relationship with James Reed Jean will come to an end during this time, but it will not be the last time the young man's name comes up in connection to this case. The police have yet to publicly name Henry van Breda as a suspect in the murder of his family and the attempted murder of his sister. It is clear, though, that their investigation is being taken very seriously. They would maintain possession of the house at 12 Hoske Street for more than a month after the murders, meticulously recording every piece of evidence. They take Henry back to the scene so that he can reconstruct his version of events. When Miley was released from the physical rehabilitation centre, she asked if she could get some of her belongings from the house. Family members and police accompanied her there. Eventually, having gleaned every piece of physical evidence they believe possible, police hand back the house to Andre de Toy, who will now, along with Martin's brother, be responsible for selling the property. The house will later be sold for 5.8 million rand. It's regularly claimed by the de Toy and Van Breda families that Henry will be returning to Australia in 2016 to resume his studies, while some of the family members may well have believed that to be true, it doesn't happen. Instead, after the first Christmas without Rudy, Martin and Teresa, Henry enrolls in a culinary course at Capsicum Culinary Studio in Salt River, Cape Town. The divergent proposed career path is surprising to many. Henry had been studying a science degree in Australia, where has this sudden creative streak come from? Journalists soon figured out where Henry was spending his days, and they camp out outside, hoping to snap photographs of him and chat to his classmates. Most don't want to talk to the media, but the few that do have quite varied accounts of the young man. A female classmate describes him as chatty and fun. She enjoys his jokes, and he's fun to be around. A male classmate remarks that he's very quiet and smokes a lot. Some of them are aware of what has happened to Henry's family, but no one asks him about it. Journalists often spot Henry walking with a crowd of students near the college. He jokes, and the whole group laughs with him. The boy, once described as a loner, seems to be coming into his own. It is at Capsicum Culinary School that Henry meets Danielle Janse van Rensburg. The dark-haired young girl is beautiful and bubbly. She seems completely smitten with Henry, and he with her. Ordinarily, I wouldn't go into too much detail about a girlfriend so long after the case has ended, but Danielle Janse van Rensburg has become a very public supporter of Henry van Breda. She will later be interviewed about her relationship with him by international journalists. 
When reporters figure out that Henry is dating someone new, of course, they do what they can to find out a bit about her background. In his book, The Dissolza Murders, Julian Janssen recalls trying to get hold of Danielle, and when she avoided his calls, he managed to find a number for her mother who lives in Scotland. Julian introduces himself and asks if the woman would mind giving a comment about her daughter's relationship with Henry van Breda. He recalls how the line went quiet for a while, and then the woman explained that her daughter had mentioned she was dating a young man called Henry, but she had no idea that it was Henry van Breda. The call with Janssen ends with the mother saying that her daughter has always been the type of person that wants to help everyone, regardless of the cost. She asks Julian for the chance to speak to Danielle first, before she makes any comments. He says that she sounds emotional as she ends the call. Danielle's mother is divorced from her father, and when the media come calling at her father's medical practice in Impumalanga, it's certainly not the first time Dr. Janssen van Rensburg and his new wife have had to deal with journalists. It will emerge that the Janssen van Rensburgs had been at the centre of another high-profile case in South Africa several years before. Danielle's father was friends with Dirk Prinsloo and Cezanne Fisser, the latter being dubbed Advocate Bobby. Prinsloo and Fisser were accused, and Fisser was convicted, of drugging and sexually abusing several minor girls. Fisser served time in jail for the crimes, but Prinsloo fled the country and was eventually jailed in Belarus for unrelated crimes. I covered this case in episode 21 of the podcast. Dr. Janssen van Rensburg was not just known for being friends with the notorious couple, though. In Fisser's trial, the doctor was identified as the source of the sedatives Rehypnol and Rolab, which the couple had used to drug their victims. The doctor said that the prescriptions were issued to Prinsloo after he'd complained of having problems sleeping. Again, ordinarily I would never name the children of people that had been brought up in criminal trials of that nature, but Danielle's later relationship would unfortunately put her straight back in the public eye. It would later emerge that police had already assembled their dockets and submitted it to the Director of Public Prosecutions in March 2015, just two months after the murder. The file was thick and packed with information. It would take another 12 months for the DPP to eventually be satisfied that the case before them was prosecutable. On more than four occasions, the docket was returned to the police for clarification on certain aspects and for more evidence to be analysed. It was clear that the state wanted no holes in their case should they end up presenting their version of events at trial. The public would have no idea about the fierce battle that would go on behind the scenes of this investigation. At one point, it seemed the case would not go to trial, and instead an inquest would be held. The idea was benched, and then the wisdom of having a relatively inexperienced detective, Mato, on the case was questioned. Julian Janssen says in his book that the investigation was soon slowly moved away from Mato's control without him ever being directly told that this was being done. 
Constable Matu had run a tight investigation, but sadly he would never receive recognition for his work. He became ill before the DPP announced that they were finally happy with the docket, and passed away before the case ever went to trial. Colonel Beneka would become the front man of the case. Thirteen months after the murders, Bailey van Breda, Martin's brother, talks to the media about their family's frustration with the progress of the case. He says that he is aware that there seems to be a mountain of circumstantial evidence, but no one is telling them where the evidence points. Finally, on the 13th of June, 2016, news leaks to the media that the DPP have taken the decision to prosecute in the Van Bredar case. Julian Janssen hears that a warrant of arrest has been issued for Henry Van Bredar. He is required to hand himself over to Stellenbosch police by 3.30pm that day. Of course, as is law, Henry is not publicly identified because he's yet to appear in court. It will later be relayed that upon hearing the news of the DPP's decision to lay charges against her clients, Lorinda van Niekak asked for an opportunity to have her client hand himself over rather than run the risk of a very public arrest. Police agreed to hold off until that afternoon. After 3.30pm, though, the arrest of the young man will be actioned. Henry van Bredaas spends the night in police holding cells. As news starts to spread of his arrest, the principal of Marley's school takes preemptive action against the rumour mill that will now undoubtedly spring up around the girl. He sends out an email acknowledging the news and asks for teachers, parents and pupils to continue to support Marley as they've done to that point. Henry's first appearance in court is chaotic at first. Hordes of journalists throng outside, and some will say that police play to this, as they arrive with Henry in a police vehicle and walk him up the court steps. Journalists shout his name to get his attention, and he briefly smiles. One voice screams the word, murderer. The state prosecutor on this case will be advocate Susan Galloway. Susan Galloway has been a prosecutor with the Director of Public Prosecutions since 1990. She's tried hundreds of high-profile cases in the Western Cape, including the Rob Packham and Najwa Peterson cases. She was also the prosecutor in the murder of Leslie Saliers, the murdered father and policeman whose case I covered in episode 51. Galloway also successfully argued for 10 murder convictions in 2016 against Jacob Humphreys, who was a school transport driver and continued to cross a railway line in Blackheath, despite the warning bell sounding and the level crossing beginning to close. Humphreys' vehicle containing 15 children was struck by a train, resulting in the deaths of 10 children and significant injury of four. The case was a major win for Galloway and the DPP, as in most cases of this nature, the driver would only be found guilty of a lesser crime of culpability. Humphreys was handed down ten murder convictions and four convictions of attempted murder. Henry van Breda and his legal team, though experienced in their own right, would be up against a formidable opponent in Galloway. 
As she read out the indictments to the court, it became clear that the kid gloves were off and the state was going in full force against their suspect. Henry van Breda was charged with three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder and one count of defeating or obstructing the administration of justice. Galloway confirmed that the state was alleging that Henry had planned the crimes, inflicted injuries to his own person, tampered with the crime scene and supplied false information to the police. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. The summary of the substantial facts of the case as posed by the prosecution would reveal some of the main points of evidence that they would use to attempt to convict Henry. It read as follows. Quote, During the course of the evening of Monday the 26th of January 2015, raised voices were heard from the Funbradar home. At approximately 4.24am on Tuesday the 27th of January 2015, the accused made a cell phone call to his girlfriend, which went unanswered. At approximately 4.27am, the accused did an internet search via Google for emergency numbers. At approximately 7.12am, the accused made a series of phone calls from his cell phone to emergency telephone numbers. And at approximately 7.38am, there was a further call to his girlfriend. The South African Police Service were notified of the incident at about 7.15am and arrived with other emergency services at the Funbradar home. Post-mortem examinations conducted on the bodies of the three deceased showed the cause of death of all the deceased as being head injuries and the consequences thereof. An axe and a kitchen knife were recovered from the scene. The accused was found at the scene. He was dressed in a pair of sleep shorts and white socks. A DNA analysis of blood found on the accused and on his clothing matches the DNA of the three deceased. The accused exhibited superficial wounds, which included knife wounds. There is expert medical opinion that the wounds are self-inflicted. There were no signs of forced entry to the Funbradar home. No items were removed from the home. No intruder to the estate was detected by the security company during the period in question. End quote. Galloway says that the state does not oppose bail, and advocate Boerta presents evidence of Henry's ties to the country as well as his cooperation with police during the period of the investigation to support his client's bid for bail. Bail is set at 100,000 rand with strict conditions. Henry's passport is confiscated and he's not allowed to leave the province or come within 500 metres of an international airport. He must report to Paro Police Station every day and is not permitted to have contact with any of the 114 people on the state's list of witnesses. The list in reference will be leaked to the media shortly after Henry's bail hearing. It is then that the public will discover that the states have included Marley van Breda as a witness. When the state assembles a list like this, it doesn't mean that they will definitely call every single person on the list. It does mean, though, that Henry is not allowed any contact with his sister. Later that day, Marley's advocate makes a statement on behalf of her. She describes the news of her brother's indictment as very distressing. 
It's alleged that she and Henry have been in regular contact, but this will now have to end, at least for the foreseeable future. Now that Henry has officially been charged, the question of who will pay for his legal counsel is resurrected. The trial could take months, even years. At this point, his expenses for his culinary course and his accommodation in various guest houses is being paid for by the trust his father set up. But there is another beneficiary of that trust, and she has an advocate too. Marley van Breda's rights and interests are being represented by her advocate, and as such, she should have a say in how the trust's money is spent. Andre and Sonia de Toy, of course, are in the unenviable position of being both legal guardian to Molly and Henry. By law, legal guardianship only runs until the age of 18, but parents can state in their final will and testament that they wish for the child to be under guardianship until the age of 21. Considering the size and complexity of the Van Breda estate, I would think that this is what Martin and Teresa would have stipulated. Henry would have turned 21 by the time he went to trial, but I am sure from a moral perspective that Andre and Sonia would still have felt a responsibility towards him. I cannot even imagine how difficult some of the decisions must have been that they had to make. The family and the advocates are tight-lipped about whether the trust will pay Henry's legal fees. With Henry now being legally barred from being in contact with many members of his family, he and Danielle continue to move between guest houses. They're pictured eating ice cream in Strand, and people report seeing them in shops and restaurants in Bloberg-Strand. While the family keep their thoughts about Henry's guilt or innocence to themselves for the most part, Michelle Barnard, Teresa's close friend, does not mince her words. She tells journalists that she believes Henry is guilty. She says that she believes Henry's jealousy over his brother Rudy's achievements and success finally boiled over that night, and after he had taken out the greatest of his fury on his brother and his father came to Rudy's rescue, he'd killed him too. Barnard would say that Henry had always been very jealous of Marley as well. She said that although the inheritance would have been an added bonus, Henry's motive that night, in her opinion, was to eliminate every person that he felt made him look like a failure. Four days before Henry's due to appear in court in order to set a trial date, he and Danielle are parked at the beachfront in Bloberg-Strand. As part of a crime prevention operation, police search Danielle's vehicle and find a small amount of dacher. Henry and Danielle are arrested. Danielle is released on bail the same day, and Henry is held overnight, and eventually released on 1,000 rand bail. Danielle claims that the Dacher belongs to her, and that Henry did not know it was there. As part of the court proceedings for this drug possession charge, the magistrate asks that a report be presented about the history of Henry's drug abuse. Prosecutors in the murder trial sit up and take notice. This could be vital evidence for them. As Danielle appears in court for the drug charges, another rumour emerges around the young girl. Her tummy appears a little rounded, and journalists speculate that she may be pregnant. 
Soon, though, it becomes apparent that this is not the case, and it's perhaps just a result of all the takeaways that she and Henry had been eating during their nomadic tour around the Western Cape. Guest house owners will have less than flattering things to say about the couple's conduct in their establishments, with at least two telling local magazines that the rooms were the filthiest they'd ever seen. Henry and Danielle continue attending college, and soon they need to perform their practical tests, which are undertaken at restaurants across Cape Town. No one knows whether Henry completes his test, but it's rumoured that one patron at a local restaurant walked out when he heard that Henry van Breda was working at the restaurant. As the trial looms, Julian Janssen finds that the van Breda side of the family is more open to chatting to him, and evidence of a rift in family opinions around Henry's guilt seems to be shifting. Janssen meets with Bailey van Breda, Martin's brother. The man is fighting two battles at once. He is dealing with the horrific slaughter of his family and the accusation that his nephew may be responsible, and he's fighting cancer. He tells Janssen that he doesn't think he'll be able to attend the trial because he has to have chemotherapy. His words to the journalists speak volumes about how some of the people that have known Henry his whole life are feeling. Quote, The bastard carries on with his life as if nothing has happened. We haven't seen anything of him. He doesn't visit me or Andre. End quote. In fairness, Henry has been banned by his bail conditions from seeing Andre, who's set to testify in court. I don't know whether Bailey is also on the list. The anger from Bailey van Breda is a symptom of all his family has had to deal with in the last year and a half. Finally, on the 27th of March 2017, the highly anticipated trial gets underway. The judge appointed to decide Henry van Breda's guilt or innocence is Judge Siraj Desai. He has more than two decades' experience on the bench, and like Galloway and Buerta, has seen his fair share of high-profile trials. He handed down a 28-year sentence to Najwa Peterson, and also conducted the inquest into the death of cricketer Hansi Crenier in 2002. Before the state can present its case, though, before the state can present its case, though, the judge must rule on an application from several media houses to take still photographs and record live footage of the case. He grants the application, and despite pushback from the defence, who feel that their client will be unduly prejudiced by such recordings, the application is upheld. The back and forth on the media's application will take more than a month. During that time, Henry and Danielle's drug possession case is finalised, with the charges against both being withdrawn. In Henry's case, no further recommendations are made, as the state feels it has insufficient evidence to proceed. In Danielle's case, the magistrate recommends psychological counselling. As I present the physical and other evidence from the trial, I will not necessarily do it in order of testimony. It makes more sense to me to handle each piece of evidence as a separate unit and discuss all of the testimony related to that evidence in one go. 
There are certain pieces of evidence that overlap, like the blood evidence and Henry's testimony, and in those cases I will address the evidence where I feel it fits best. Henry's version of events, as read out in court during the trial, is that he was seated on the toilet when he heard an intruder attacking his brother. He got off the toilet and stood at the door, peering through a small gap. He says that the intruder, who was dressed in dark clothes, a balaclava mask and gloves, was standing between their beds. Evidence would later be led that Rudy's bed was the one closest to the door and Henry's bed was closest to the balcony and toilet. Therefore, if the intruder was standing between the beds, he would have had his back to Henry and be on Rudy's right-hand side. Henry said that he initially froze and then shouted for help. When asked what the attacker did when he shouted for help, he said that he didn't seem to react, but everything was happening so quickly that within seconds his father had responded and entered the room. Martin switched the light on and observed Rudy still being attacked by the intruder. Henry says that his father immediately went toward Rudy's bed and approached the attacker. It appeared as though he wanted to get between the man and Rudy and protect his son with his own body. Henry says that the attacker hit Martin with the axe in the head and he collapsed. He claimed that the attacker then started to laugh and although Martin was no longer moving, he hit the man again several times. Henry says that he heard his mother's voice in the passage. She approached the bedroom, asking what was going on. When he was later asked why he did not call out to warn his mother of the danger she was walking into, he was unable to explain this. He watched as the attacker walked slightly out of the bedroom, toward his mother, out of his range of view. He could not recall hearing any sounds of the attack on his mother. He says that the attacker then re-entered the bedroom. At this stage, he was standing just outside the bathroom, between the bathroom door and the bottom of his bed. The attacker was still laughing when he approached Henry, according to his testimony. Henry says he grabbed the attacker's right hand, in which he held the axe, with both of his hands, and wrestled the axe away from him. He shoved him away and reported being surprised at how easy it was to disarm him. Henry claims that at this point, he saw Rudy moving around on his bed and gurgling. When the attacker approached Henry again, he says that the man grabbed his right forearm in which he was now holding the axe. Simultaneously, the masked man lifted his right hand and Henry saw that he had a knife in it. He did not see where the man had been carrying the knife before that. Henry then describes a struggle in which the man was able to inflict several knife wounds on him, but he was holding the man's arm, so the injuries from that part of the encounter were not serious. The man then twisted the arm that Henry was using to hold his knife, and managed to stab him several times. While this was happening, Henry says he struck the man with the axe, which was in his free right hand, but he was holding the axe back to front, so he only hit the man with the blunt side. This mistake resulted in the man inflicting the most serious of Henry's wounds, the stab wound, which was 10 millimeters deep. Henry says that the knife stayed stuck in his side, and the attacker left it there. Henry himself pulled it out, 
and threw it on the floor. The attacker then fled the room. Some of the points from this part of the testimony that the state would question would include why the attacker would continue to engage with Henry after he disarmed him. Henry was holding an axe, and the man was only armed with a knife. The attacker's initial seeming complete disregard for Henry's presence was also questioned. The man had allegedly entered the room, and despite seeing two beds, had faced his back to the toilet door, as well as the balcony, in order to attack Rudy. Even when he had heard Henry call for help, by Henry's own testimony, he had not reacted. The man had then also chosen to attack Teresa, a smaller female, and Marley, rather than deal with Henry, a strapping young man who was standing right behind him. The state would also question why, when Martin had entered the room, Henry had not then had the courage to join his father in bringing down the attacker. The state would also put it to Henry that Martin may have laid himself over his injured son if he'd thought that the attacker would not also strike him. He would only have thought this if he knew the attacker. If the attacker had been unknown to him, and a true intruder, dressed in a balaclava, it would have been a suicide mission to simply lay over his son rather than face the attacker head-on. Furthermore, the state said that if the attacker truly had been unknown to Martin, he would not just be concerned for his and Rudy's safety, he would be concerned for the safety of his entire family, and the absolute priority would be to disarm the man immediately. I'll get to the injuries that the victims received shortly, but I must say that this piece of evidence speaks volumes to me. It makes absolutely no sense that Martin van Bredaar would lay his body down over that of his wounded son if the man standing over him was unidentified and unknown to him. The only scenario in which I can see a parent behaving in this way is if, as the state alleges, Martin believed that the person holding the axe would not attack him. What does a parent do if their children get into a physical fight? They separate them. Under normal circumstances, the parent is not afraid that one child will strike them. They just want to split them up. Again, I realize that this was not a punch-up between boys, and I also know that you cannot predict how anyone would react in such a situation, but I can't seem to fathom a scenario in which a parent and husband would not attempt to disarm an intruder when there were four other members of the family at risk. At this point, Henry says that Rudy was moving around on his bed violently, and he heard angry voices in the hallway. He thinks that they were speaking Afrikaans. Henry says that he chased after the attacker, and he saw Marley had also been attacked and lay beside their mother just outside the bedroom. The attacker had descended the first flight of stairs and was standing on the first landing area. Henry did not think that he could catch the man, and as he says he's not a fast runner, so instead he threw the axe at the man. It did not hit him, but landed somewhere on the stairs. While he was pursuing the attacker, Henry says he lost his balance and fell on the stairs. He describes the fall as quite severe. 
He then got up and moved towards the kitchen, noticing that the kitchen door was open. He peered outside into the back alley, but couldn't see anyone. He then went back into the house and realized that he had his cell phone with him in the pockets of his sleep shorts. Henry says that he wanted to call emergency services, but didn't know the number. He then called his girlfriend, but she didn't answer. He tried to Google the number for emergency services and remembers seeing the downstairs study light on at the time. Henry says that at this point, he started to go back upstairs as he could hear his brother gurgling and moving around upstairs. When he got to the top of the stairs, he saw Marley moving and his mother laying very still. This is the last thing he remembers as he states that he lost consciousness at this point. The state would show that if Henry Fambrada's version were true, and he had chased the intruders out the house and then looked out the open back door to ascertain where they were, he had not closed it when he came back in. He had just allegedly chased at least two intruders from his home, who had brutally attacked his family and injured him, but he left the door standing open. Again, one would think that your first instinct upon ascertaining that the intruders had indeed fled the home would be to secure yourself in the premises. He did not even close the door, never mind locking it. Henry says that he regained consciousness when it was already becoming light outside. He recalled feeling disoriented and unsure whether the attacks had been real. He then saw Marley and his mother and Marley was moving. He also still heard Rudy gurgling in the bedroom. Henry says that he found his phone laying on the stairs and went down to the kitchen with it. He then mentions a list of emergency numbers that was posted on the fridge door. Martin Frambradar had always been portrayed as a very security-conscious person. He had stuck the various emergency numbers onto his fridge so that they would be easily accessible to anyone in the household in an emergency situation. The Fumbradar domestic workers both stated that one of the first things they had been shown when they started working for the family was the list of numbers on the fridge, should they be in the house when assistance was required. In his statement, Henry admits that he looked at the numbers, but did not feel that they would be of any assistance. He proceeded to once again use a Google search to find a number which he attempted to call twice from his cell phone and once from a landline without success. The numbers on the list on the fridge included two 24-hour emergency numbers as well as the number for security at the gate. When Henry was asked why he had disregarded all of these numbers, he said that he didn't think that any of those services would be helpful to him. He believed that it would be faster for him to call emergency services himself and request an ambulance. He would also be asked why he did not rush to any of his neighbours, who had been long-time residents in the country and who would have likely had better knowledge of who to call than him. He said he didn't think of that at the time. Henry describes his state of mind at this time as panicking, and he knew he needed to calm down in order to get help, so he fetched his cigarettes and lit one in the kitchen. 
Henry would go on to smoke at least three cigarettes in the kitchen that morning. He did not use an ashtray and tossed the butts onto the floor. His smoking habits would be examined during the trial in great length. It was established that while his parents did not like him smoking, they allowed him to do so, but only outside the house. He was also not allowed to smoke in front of his sister. Witnesses would testify that they had never seen Henry smoke inside the house or in front of his parents, for that matter. Henry would later be asked about the strange action of putting cigarette butts out on his parents' kitchen floor. He claimed, at the time, that he had no idea whether his family members were alive or dead, but it would be put to him that he, in fact, knew that his parents had no hope of survival and smoking in their house and then putting out the butts on their floor was a final sign of disrespect towards them. The timing of the cigarette smoking would also be called into question. When he initially spoke to police, he said that he'd only smoked after he'd called emergency services, but in his plea explanation in court, he said that he'd started smoking while trying to find the numbers in order to remain calm. I am a smoker myself, and I've often tried to put myself in that situation and wonder whether I would even think about smoking before I called for help. It's a difficult one to ascertain. Non-smokers would likely balk at the idea of even thinking about smoking at any point in that situation. But for smokers, the habit does become a bit of an emotional crutch. We know what happens during Henry's emergency call, and we know that he explains his calm demeanour by saying that he knew he needed to stay calm to get help for his family. He was unable to explain, when asked by the state, why he had gone back upstairs after chasing the intruders out of the house. This would come into play when the fact that he had not checked on his family members, either directly after the attacks or after he had gained consciousness, came to light. At no point during the entire ordeal did Henry van Breda go to any of his family members to see if he could offer assistance. He regularly refers to hearing his brother gurgling. To me, if I hear someone gurgling, I think they must be struggling to breathe. Possibly my first instinct would be to see if I can somehow elevate that person to help them. Henry did not go into the bedroom he shared with his brother at all to offer assistance. He mentions that he had seen Marley move. At no point does he rush to his sister's side and try to stem the bleeding, or at the very least assure her that help is on the way. Henry's explanation for this would be that he did not think he would be able to do anything useful, and that after he had called the ambulance, he felt that he had done all he could. Henry conceded that in such a traumatic situation, it would have been helpful if he had just let his family members know that he was there, and that the intruders were gone, and that help was on the way. He could not explain why he did not attempt to offer even the small token of empathy. Instead, during this time, Henry was once again trying to phone his girlfriend. The court itself would acknowledge the severe trauma of the situation, whether Henry had been victim or aggressor. But it would also question why, 
If Henry was functioning at a high enough level to make several phone calls, Google searches and send text messages, he had not also been able to function at a normal level emotionally, in terms of reassuring his family or showing any empathy at all toward them. In this section, I'm going to be covering the injuries suffered by each of the deceased and what those injuries seem to indicate as relates to the state and Henry's versions. The details of the injuries are graphic, and if you feel you may not want to listen to this section, you can skip ahead now. Senior Specialist in Forensic Pathology Services, based at the Tigerberg campus of the University of Stellenbosch, Dr. Daphne Anthony, testified about the autopsies she conducted on Martin, Teresa and Rudy van Breda. Dr. Anthony testifies that all three victims died from head injuries and the consequences thereof. Some of the axe wounds caused skull fractures in the victims and resulted in bleeding on the brain. Rudy van Breda suffered the most extensive injuries of all. Dr. Anthony found bruises and fractures at the base of Rudy's skull, as well as blood in his stomach. This, she testified, would have been as a result of him being alive for a period after the injuries and swallowing blood from his mouth. In total, there were seven scalp lacerations to Rudy's head, more toward the left side and back of his head. He had three blunt force trauma wounds to his leg and wrist. Rudy's pinky finger had also been lacerated and his fingernail had come off. Dr. Anthony testified that five of the wounds Rudy had sustained could have been fatal on their own. She found that Exhibit 1, the axe, was consistent with having caused the injuries received by Rudy. The doctor found that the wounds had been inflicted on Rudy using tremendous force and at a high rate of speed. The doctor further testified that with the types of injuries Rudy had suffered, he may have been alive, breathing and swallowing for more than a few minutes after the attack. He may have been able to move his limbs in situ for a short period after receiving these wounds, but in her opinion, he would not have been mobile to the extent that he could get up and move himself around. Dr. Anthony was able to postulate from the location and patterns of the wounds that Rudy would have been lying on his back, on the right side of his face, when he was attacked. After receiving the initial wounds, he became aware of the attack and raised his hand to ward off the attacker. This is when he'd received the wound to his hand. The amount of blood on the bed indicated that Rudy had laid in bed for quite some time after receiving the wounds. When Dr. Anthony was asked whether it could have taken Rudy two hours and forty minutes to die, she was unable to confirm or refute this. The testimony about the location of Rudy's wounds supported the location of the attacker as Henry had explained. What was in dispute, however, was the location of his body and how he got there. Rudy's body was not found in his bed. He was found between Henry's bed and the bathroom door. The defense's version was that Rudy must have crawled there himself, as when Henry left the room, Rudy had been in bed, according to him. The state's version, however, was that Henry had dragged his body. The state's version, however, 
was that Henry had dragged his brother's body across the room as part of his rage attack. Captain Marius Hubert testified in court around all of the blood evidence, and when he kindly agreed to answer some of my questions about the case, I asked him whether the blood evidence had indicated dragging or conscious movements by Rudy. He indicated the blood evidence did indeed show that Rudy was dragged. Quote, There was no evidence that Rudy was mobile after being attacked on his bed. Rudy died on the bed, on his stomach, head facing to the wall, more or less the position he was found on the floor. Flow patterns from his head had already dried, which indicated the position he was in when these flow patterns were created and had time to dry. What was not mentioned in the court proceedings is that bloodstain evidence indicates that Rudy was turned over, which resulted in the smear mark on his father's right shoulder and arm. The blood-stained edge from his shorts created a pattern on his bed supporting this scenario. Rudy was then dragged from his bed to his final position. Rudy was not alive on the floor. There is no expiration of blood on the floor underneath his mouth, and there is absence of splatter stains. No new flow patterns were created originating from his head wounds, which further indicates his heart was not beating any more. There were finger marks observed on the side of both beds near the floor, but in my opinion, considering other evidence, these were created by Henry's hands when he dragged Rudy from the bed. If Rudy was still alive, we would have noticed hand impressions made with blood on the bed and on the floor leading up to where he was found. End quote. Another expert witness, Dr. de Travaux, testified that the gurgling sound Henry had said he heard from Rudy was likely as a result of blood in his throat in the process of dying. It was unlikely that Rudy would have still been making the sound almost three hours after the attack, and Henry had said that he'd heard the sound both before and after he himself had lost consciousness. Henry would eventually concede on the stand that it was possible that he was hearing Molly making gurgling sounds after he'd regained consciousness, and not Rudy. In Henry's statement to the police after the attacks, he said that Rudy was just lying there. But in his plea explanation to the court, he described Rudy moving around violently on his bed. It was put to him that he had included this as an afterthought after becoming aware of Captain Hubert's evidence that Rudy had been dragged from the bed. The state said that Henry had attempted to introduce the possibility that Rudy had moved himself. Martin van Breda had four lacerations to his head and upper back. Three of the wounds he sustained could have been fatal on their own. Anthony was of the opinion that the wounds had been inflicted from behind, as there was no sign that the victim had attempted to fight back or defend himself. Microscopic evidence of blood was found in Martin's lungs, meaning that he had not died right away and had continued to breathe for a few minutes after he received these injuries. There was also blood in Martin's stomach, which indicated that he was alive and swallowing when he received the injuries. Martin's organs were pale in colour, which indicated to Dr. Anthony that he had bled out. 
The defence attempted to dispute the evidence that Martin had been bent over Rudy in a protective stance when he was struck, by saying that in Henry's opinion, his father was going in low between the attacker and Rudy to push the man away. In this version, Martin would have had to have been crouched over with his head down and lower back facing upward in order to be struck by the attacker in the way he was. If Martin had gone in to rugby tackle the attacker around his waist, for instance, this scenario may fit, but he then surely would have fallen face down onto the floor and not turned around and fallen face down onto the bed. Teresa Fambradar had received a chop wound that had split into two separate wounds. This was located on the right top side of her scalp. She also had a chop wound to the middle of her scalp. Teresa's nose bridge had abrasions, and she had contusions on her back. She had a defensive wound on the inside of her right thumb. Dr. Anthony testified that Teresa had most likely been facing her attacker when she received her injuries, and that she had raised her hand in an attempt to defend herself. There was no evidence of blood aspiration or in the stomach of Teresa, indicating that she died relatively quickly after receiving the wounds. Teresa's organs were also pale in appearance, indicating significant blood loss. The contusions to Teresa's back, according to Dr. Anthony, were likely sustained from a fall, but she also felt that the wound to her nose was sustained from falling onto her face. Dr. Anthony believed that the initial wound to the middle of her scalp was inflicted first, and the thumb wound was inflicted at the same time. After receiving this wound, she fell to the floor face first, sustaining the injury to her nose. The injury to her back could possibly be explained by a bookcase that stood beside the area where Teresa was attacked. If, when falling, she hit the bookcase first, and then fell forward. Several of the experts would testify to the extent and circumstances around Marley's injuries. Dr. Small Smith, the neurologist that had treated Marley, described her injuries as not only potentially fatal, but in fact, usually fatal. The girl's prognosis when she presented at Mediclinic Fagelichen was very poor. Marley sustained five deep lacerations to her head, with brain tissue visible through the wounds. Four of these lacerations were to the left side of her head, and one was to the right side. There was also a deep laceration to her left ear, which was partially severed from her head, and another to the left side of her neck. The axe wounds that Marley incurred were all similar in nature to those experienced by her parents and brother. The main difference in her case was that she fought back, far more significantly than they had. There were several defensive injuries to hands and arms, which spoke to a ferocious fight for her life. The pathologist, Dr. Anthony, also testified about the nature of Miley's wounds as compared to the other family members, and she was of the opinion that the force and number of wounds indicated that the attacker most certainly intended to kill her. Much has been made of Miley's survival, despite all these odds, 
and I have even seen opinions regarding Marley Fimbradar's involvement in the attack on her family, and I would like to address these opinions now. Three medical experts with decades of experience in head wounds and traumatic brain injuries testified in a court of law that Marley Fimbradar's injuries should not have been survivable. The fact that she did survive can be attributed to several circumstances, including her age, her rate of bleeding being slower than the other victims, and pretty much pure luck. Given an extra half an hour, Marley Fimbradar may have died on the scene. Some opinions suggest that Marley collaborated with her brother, and the injuries inflicted on her were done with her consent. No, really, some people have said that. Even if you completely discount the obvious defensive wounds, what person in their right mind is going to allow someone to rain five axe blows down on their skull on the off chance that they'll survive? I said in the beginning of this series that I would address all theories, and so I am. But in my opinion at least, this one borders on ludicrous. For those who believe this theory, though, two other pieces of evidence drove them on in this belief. The first piece of evidence was hair that was found entwined between Marley's fingers. The hair had initially been proposed by the state to have belonged to Henry. Unfortunately, this was shown to have been an erroneous presumption, as the hair was 200 millimeters long, and Henry's hair on the night of the murders was not near this long. Marley's own hair was longer than that, and the only person in the house with the hair of that length was Teresa. It was not possible to positively say that it did belong to Teresa, and although the state had attempted to initially prove the hair had been ripped out of a person's head, presumably in a struggle, it was conceded during testimony that this was not the only way it could have come to have been in Marley's hand. Now the hair testimony was never going to be earth-shattering, but those that had claimed Miley's involvement attempted to use this as some sort of proof that the girl had been involved in a struggle with her mother. There are actually entire videos on YouTube dedicated to this theory. Miley's hand was closed around the hair, but the hair could have been transferred from any other surface onto her hand before she closed it. It also could have been anyone's hair. So to attempt to use this as proof that Miley was somehow involved in her mother's murder is seriously clutching at straws, in my opinion. The second piece of evidence was a message that Miley's boyfriend at the time of the attacks, James Reed John, had sent to the girl in the days before the attacks. The message was discovered by the police when they searched the family's cell phones and computers after the murders. It was allegedly sent after an argument between Miley and her parents, two weeks before their murders. Martin had allegedly made a remark about Miley's weight, and had also expressed concern that her relationship with James was too serious, and asked that she tone it down in the run-up to her exams. Miley had gone to sit by the pool, and she'd been telling James by text about the arguments and her parents' concerns. 
James then sends Marley the text that will set the court buzzing when it is read out. Quote, I feel like I want to murder the people that are around you at the moment, and I am inches away from losing it with them and breaking down completely. End quote. Yes, you heard that right. Marley's boyfriend expressed the desire to kill her family in a message two weeks before they were killed. Now I can see that this would have made police seriously suspicious, and it did. It would emerge in the trial that they had been investigating the possibility that the young man had been involved in the murders. Ultimately, though, James Reed John would be confirmed through various means to have been at home on the night of the murders. He and Miley texted together until 10pm when she'd gone to sleep and their messages that night contained none of the anger of two weeks before. His cell phone activity had put him at home, as had eyewitnesses. He had been a regular visitor at the Dissolza estate, but did not have a resident card, so he would have to sign in. The estate security were familiar with Rejohn, and CCTV and sign-in activity do not put him in the Dissolza estate that night. The biggest piece of evidence that James Rejohn was not involved in the murders was the fact that Miley was viciously attacked within an inch of her life. The couple were deep in young love at that point. Even if James had been serious in his messages, it makes no sense that he would attack Miley too. Who among us can say that we've never said in a moment of anger, I could just kill that person right now? The fact that, in this case, the people that were once the focus of this young man's anger actually were viciously murdered, is just a very unfortunate turn of events, in my opinion. Speaking of cell phone activity, I wondered whether there had ever been any activity on any of the family members' cell phones that could have either supported or refuted Henry's version. So I asked Julian Janssen. Yes, it's my knowledge that the police took in all the cell phones and all the laptops uh, in the house and they made copies of all the, of all the hard drives and they scrutinized for days that they went through every inch of information on all those electronic devices and I would presume that they didn't find any activity on those devices except Henry's device over that that faithful hours in which the uh, three family members were killed on that evening. But yes, the police did scrutinize the phones and laptops of the victims. And that leads me into another highly contested part of this case, the missing hours. From 4.30am to 7.10am, Henry van Breda went radio silent. He called his girlfriend, he googled an emergency number, and then he was gone. For two hours and 48 minutes, we have no idea what Henry van Breda was doing. It is Henry's version that he was unconscious for that period of time. He would initially say that he'd fallen on the stairs on his way down while chasing the perpetrators, and then after this, when ascending, he'd seen his mother and sister again and believes he fainted, and perhaps combined with hitting his head earlier, he'd lost consciousness. 
The States was having none of this, and it was their version that it was impossible for a person to be unconscious for almost three hours from a simple fall. The State believed that Henry was awake for most, if not all, of this time period, and that he was essentially waiting for as long as he could to make sure his family were dead before calling emergency services. They would say that he knew that he had to do something before 7.30, because the domestic worker would be arriving. Toward the end of the trial, however, things took a sudden twist, when the defence presented a witness that would provide an alternative explanation for Henry's loss of consciousness. The expert was Dr James Butler, and he is a neurologist with a specialty in epilepsy and epilepsy surgery. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all I can fit into part three without it getting ridiculously long. In part four, we'll get into the evidence presented by Dr. James Butler and consider the possibility that Henry may actually have been unconscious. There is also still quite a bit of blood evidence for me to get through and a few other interesting pieces of evidence that were presented in this case. I'll do my best to get part four out to you as soon as humanly possible. Before I go, I'd like to give a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes to Laura McAllister, Bianca Robinson, Claire Silliers, Shelley Forster, Sharon Lewis, Sandeep Shastri, Tatum Aston, and Andrew Dale for their support on Patreon, as well as Vibashni Singh for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. Don't forget about our awesome giveaway competition with King Online and get your order in with them ASAP. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with part four of the Fun Bradar Family Murders. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. 